Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with Steve Melching, Darren Dockerman, Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 Movie live. You should see the expressions. The live only on way to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is right. to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but <laughs> you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. Yeah. <laughs> Coming right. soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. <laughs> hey, if you want to watch a great podcast that none of us are on, check out Best Movies Never Made, available every other Monday from screenwriter Josh Miller and producer Steven Scarlatta, as they go behind the scenes of some of the greatest movies never made, with fantastic guests like... Steve Melching. Ashley Miller. And a lot of other people you have heard of. And not Darren Docterman. Yet. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you'll be on the show. They just invited me to be on an episode about James Bond. I wonder why. Maybe it's because I have a new book out called Nobody Does It Better, The Oral History of James Bond, available now wherever you get your books. You must learn to listen to the rebel and the rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Listen, the ship is in danger. We have been caught in a 30-minute time loop, and every second that you doubt me brings us all closer to death. Intruder alert. Shots fired. Want him locked down. Drive overload critical. Wait! Go, go, go! <laughs> Make yourselves at home. I have. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where we curate episodes of Star Trek with audio commentaries on some of your favorite and most surprising Star Trek episodes from the creators, writers, producers, stars themselves. And today, we are very, very thrilled to have with us uh, to do our first commentary on Star Trek Discovery the seventh episode of the first season, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, the great Jesse Alexander and Aaron Eli Collette. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Well, great I want to say uh, I've known Jesse for a long time. He is the uh, is a producer on Citadel with the Russo brothers for Amazon. You might know him from his amazing work on Hannibal and Lost, Alias. Um, you won't know him from day one. But uh, with some of us do. And of course, um, Aaron uh, from Netflix, Lock and Key, he did the short lived but Burn Brightly Daybreak, which we all love here. Um, and of course, uh, he also worked on Heroes. So, um, guys, uh, and, and you worked together on Discovery and you got to uh, on, 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 the, on the first season. Um, welcome to uh, Trexpert's Briefing Room. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Uh, I'm very excited to be here. I think Aaron is excited to be here. We're huge fans of uh, your uh, your work um, and the podcasts and and all things Star Trek and Trexpertian and 4:30 movie and etc. Trexpertian. I think you you created a word there. 
I'm a wordsmith. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I like it. I like it quite a bit. So before we get into the commentary, um, look, I know, Jesse, uh, you've been a long time. Uh, you're, you're a fan of Trek. Aaron, was this something, uh, were you a, a Star Trek fan prior to uh, uh, joining Discovery? I was. I was a, I'm, I'm a huge TOS fan, mainly because of my father. Like, it was, my, for me, you know, Trek played on Channel 5 in, the, in, in Los Angeles on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And my father and I would go, go to Dodger games, come home, and watch Trek together. Nice. And so joining the, uh, the crew of the Star Trek Discovery was about me honoring my dad and trying to capture what I loved about the original series. Yeah, no, that's great. Unlike Jesse Alexander, who uh, yelled from the back of a car uh, as uh, in Beverly Hills as I was walking from lunch with my daughter, Captain Kirk sucks. And we, we turned around and looked, <laughs> and we didn't know who the lunatic in the car that had just drove by was, screaming uh, like, a, like a, a crazy person at us. It wasn't um, me. Mark, that was not me. It was actually my children who I forced <laughs> to yell that. Um, and... You know, but uh, and of course, the truth is, I love Kirk. I'm a TOS guy. Everything I learned about being a man, I learned from Kirk, which uh, explains my multiple marriages. That failed. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, all is forgiven. Once I found out it was all a big joke and they didn't mean it, I, 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 I forgive everyone. So, um, I, uh, so, you know, this was a really interesting because you guys... When you started, Brian was still running the show, right? Um, you know, this is under the aegis of the creator showrunner, uh, Brian Fuller. Yeah, I mean, he, we all go back to Hero Season 1 together. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a, an amazing, <laughs> say what you will about Heroes, we had an amazing experience together. We were, you know, we, no one expected that show to be anything. And we were just like punks on Broadcast Network doing whatever the fuck we wanted to do. And, you know, Brian subsequently worked with Jesse on Hannibal and I was busy at the time. And, uh, and this was an opportunity to kind of get the band back together and stir some crazy shit up. So of course we, uh, we came on board because of the promise. I mean, I remember having a conversation with Jesse before, before going into it and he was like, come on, this is going to be amazing. We're going to have so much fucking fun. Let's do this. And then, that is that was a large impetus of, of coming on the show was just the amount of of audacious storytelling we would be able to accomplish. Yeah, fantastic. that's true. And and uh, I remember uh, you know we had so much fun on Heroes and season one. I, I still am kind of proud of season one of Heroes. It was a very weird uh, weird show, and it was one of those amazing moments where everybody at the studio level and executive level hated the show. They wanted it to die. They thought it was garbage. They wouldn't pay any attention to us. And they let the inmates run the asylum. So there's some real magic in that show in season one. And then um, it's sort of, you know, a lot of other things happen. As someone who's uh, accused of hating everything uh, but uh, original series Star Trek, I really like Heroes, especially the first few seasons. So, so there. Uh, it's, amazing. It, haters. it's amazing to hear that. I did not think <laughs> well, that was possible. Maybe you took your meds. Darren's on his meds this morning. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Jesse, you have nothing to apologize for. The first season of Heroes and, 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 and part of the second season are, 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 are pretty spectacular. Yeah. And I mean, the way it impacted pop culture, I mean, 
it's akin to, to you know what was going on with Lost. I mean, it really it burned brightly. I mean, it was huge, and and uh, I, it's a great it's a great show. And I think it it was a big part of this redefining of the superhero tropes and taking superhero um, lore. But treating it realistically yeah. as has become sort of de rigueur. We did it less successfully with the movie called The Specials that I did with Craig Mazin and uh, James Gunn many years ago. But I, I think you guys really nailed it. And of course, it was that remarkable ensemble. I mean, everybody from Masioka to um, you know, Greg Grumberg to Prophet, Adrian Pestar. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it really, I, you know, I, I don't think you need to, to um, look. Uh, you know, I kind of still like it. <laughs> no, you just go look back at your old stuff and sometimes you don't know what to expect, but it was pretty amazing. A lot of that, you know, comes down to Aaron Colite and Joe Pekaski, who were there from day one, from the conception of that that show and were huge Marvel fans, X-Men fans. Mm -hmm. And I think we did make something special, as you're saying, that told a lot of the network studios and companies like Marvel, hey, you know what? <laughs> Don't be embarrassed about your superheroes. You can probably make some shows out of these and people yeah. will watch them. I, I really think that Heroes you know, showed that and in a great way made a lot of them mad. Right. Like, why aren't we exploiting our brands? And like, why are they like, you know, making hey, a show? Don't like, we, we have superheroes that. somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> and they made up all their superheroes. You know, we, we got actually real superheroes that people have heard of. You know, we had a so. Days of Future Past episode we're all yeah. very proud of. You know, a lot of homage. Well, to one, one, some battles and stuff. Yeah, and it was, and I mean, and it was so. I mean, look, it was also so much fun to be in that room and yeah. and to like, and and to understand like the the it wasn't just who was on screen, which were those were amazing actors who made their you know who made some careers there, but it was also this was an incredible staff. I mean, I felt like I was like drafted to the Yankees. It was like Jesse when Jesse came over. I was like Jesse Alexander, who's did law. And Alias is coming here now. Holy fucking shit! And then it was Jeff Lowe and Brian Fuller and Michael Green. I mean, people who have gone on to do so many amazing things. You have to look at that first season writers' room and and just be in awe of what was able to be accomplished. Yeah, that was a real sluggers row. And I think I think part of what you know really caught people by surprise how how good that show was because. There was nothing that you know in the in the pitch that would make you think, oh, this show is going to be great. But I, it was definitely appointment television. This is back in the day of Mr. TiVo. You know, this is before streaming, where you could just watch it the next day, or you know, you had to really make an effort to watch it. And um, and uh, it, it was it was really it was really terrific. And I remember, I think when they premiered it, was it at Comic Con, the San Diego Comic Con, because Lost it so successfully premiered at Comic-Con. I mean, there was a huge reaction to it, if I recall. That's right, and we did something a little on the sneaky side that we weren't supposed to do. We actually showed, because again, we had Jeff Loeb with us, who's like the greatest showman ever, and, and another thing, there was authenticity there. We all loved it. We were all nerds. We all loved this thing. We all had been in the audience at Comic-Con. We knew what to do, so we brought them a uh, uh, the pilot that would never be seen again that had all these different outtakes in it. We screened it um, for the fans there and they loved it. And after we screened it, we got a call from NBC. Like they were furious. Like, what are you doing? how could you do this? And then like next year, like NBC is all over Comic-Con. Like this is, you know, how we reach the fans. 
It was wow. amazing. The, the, the first Euro show broke. running. I, I don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Right. Always. So, <laughs> um, Always. But I feel responsible. I feel like we broke. <laughs> we may have been responsible for breaking Comic Con. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Because we introduced, like, NBC, when we started, NBC was like, what's this Comic Con of which you speak? Ugh. And then we and we went down, and then the next year the office was down there, and oh. everything NBC was down there. And, and That's so embarrassing. I was, I was like, "Oh, oops, don't sorry, be, don't sorry. be like that." Twilight broke Comic Con. Everyone knows. That. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and then by the time you start getting shows like The Middle at Comic Con, it was like, "What? <laughs> what is going on?" What you know? It, it, but uh, I mean. Uh, look, we could do a whole show just on on Comic Con, and maybe we should uh, about Comic Con and 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 heroes and and lost and all these shows that uh, you know Comic Con really made these shows um, in a way, or at least they they got the word out. They started them as viral sensations. So um, it's all about early adopters. It's all about the early adopters proselytizing to to make crossover fans. Absolutely. And- Absolutely. And being authentic and giving those fans the kind of content that they that they really would want and deserve. And and one of the things that attracted Aaron and I to doing Star Trek with Brian Fuller is Brian was a Star Trek fan. That yep. was his thing. That was the he loved it so much. And not only is Brian, you know, an auteur and in the greatest way that I think he's one of the few working in TV. Um he he just loves track and he's so wonderful to work with that we knew it was going to be an incredible uh, experience. Yeah, Brian is a fascinating case because he's a total iconoclast. He does not suffer fools. You know, he he marches to his own drummer. He's so passionate and so talented, and so creative. And 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 when you think about um, uh, you know the, the the shows that he's done and the fact that he started as a staff writer on Star Trek Voyager mm-hmm. and that things came full circle with him creating this show and basically having this blank slate and saying if you could do any Star Trek show what would it be and you know as we all know um, you know this whole Star Trek universe that exists now really owes a debt to Brian because of course it was Brian's idea that basically it would be a discover uh, 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 an anthology series and that Discovery would last mm-hmm. two years and then there'd be a next generation. Uh, series, and then there would be, you know, all these different shows, and then it was really because of the reality of producing TV and the costs involved of startup and advertising your costs that Discovery became a, a, a you know, a, an ongoing, ongoing show. Um, but uh, um, you know, it, 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 whether you love Discovery or not, everybody, you you have to acknowledge, uh, you know, that so much of its DNA, you know, is in what Brian created originally. And, and what you guys all built before, you know, he, he left and continued to hone after he left. I think that's, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, we were all lucky to be part of it. And just, again, building on what the great bird of the galaxy created for all of us, Gene Roddenberry, at the end of the day, is the one who created Trek. And we're all just getting to play with his toys and, and uh, share those visions with the world. Well, you know, well, the, the, you. The, the great bird enjoys people playing with his toys as long as he's <laughs> properly properly compensated for them. Yes, as long as the chickens are kept in the backyard. <laughs> I, I, I want to I ask you that as the last question before we go to the commentary, which of course is, you know, how much, you talk about Gene Roddenberry's, uh, you, you know, sort of the armature that is Star Trek. 
It's like, how, how much do you have to be true to what's come before? And then how much liberty do you have to expand on that before sort of the balloon bursts? Like, you know, in terms of staying in the lane that Gene Roddenberry sort of created with Star Trek and Next Generation? That is a super good question that I don't know if there's an, an actual answer to. I can tell you there was so many discussions that happened over the course, you know, so, so many writers from discussions sent around that question because certainly in terms of, of, of technology, you know, we're in such a different place than, than they were at the original series. So how do you have screens uh, when, when we already have that currently, we are, <laughs> we're, we're currently talking on screens the same way that they would. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you make something that takes place in the future when the future looks so much like the present? So how do you engage in that? And how do you, what is, what is breakable and what is untouchable? And yeah. I think, you know, for sure, we talked about all that stuff and, and, you know, and also fundamentally what Star Trek was that, you know, I'm a huge fan of the original series. And for me, it was about a collaborative human crew that were working together, that were all um, professionals and all, um, you know, combining their, their, their skill sets and personalities and attitudes to become greater than the sum of their parts. And we're going out into, into space and the conflict that, that they were facing each week really came from outside the ship and and it was how were they how were they figuring out how to deal with that and right. and that was something that I, I always found wonderful about Star Trek. Great. Well speaking of uh, what you find wonderful about Star Trek, we're about to take a look at episode seven of the first season, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, which uh, is a, a wonderfully uh, poetic title. Uh, I believe it's an homage to the Iliad, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that was not your original title. Um, your original title was also a brilliant homage to the original Star Trek, which was, um, if I'm not, which was Deja Mud, right? Deja uh, Mud. Deja Mud. Mm -hmm. I love exactly. that. Exactly. I love it. Uh, you know, the other title that we did for our earlier episode of Trek, I think is quite special. And I remember Aaron and I were coming up with it. Aaron, do you remember the title of that episode? The title of that episode is The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. Right. Which again, speaks to the guy, like we loved original Trek and we loved yeah. the the pretension and ambition of those, <laughs> of those titles and those episodes. And we were just trying to, to walk with giants. I love that so much. And I mean, look, we've talked about this before, Jesse, but yeah, I mean, the original show, when you look at Requiem for Methuselah, The City on the Edge of Forever, um, A Taste of Armageddon, these are so inspired. And it's also why I think I always could keep track of what the episodes were, you know, because each episode was so distinctive. You know, whereas when by the time you get to Next Generation, certainly to Voyager, things were like the enemy. You know, the void, <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, uh, um, just the most um, bland titles. Uh, and and um, uh, it was, you know, so generic and it lost a little of the magic. And I, the, you know, the, the, I certainly like that about Discovery in that you guys sort of brought back, you know, these elegant titles. You we, know, can, the more we can certainly talk about that during the episode. 
Yep, and let's do that. So, Darren, <laughs> if, if you don't mind, now, if you don't let's, mind, let's, Darren, let's start. Let's start the episode called "The Magical Space Pirate." Uh, in three, two, one. Previously on Star Trek Discovery, the Discovery is now the only. Now, guys, this is interesting because you have the recap here, but you don't have a teaser, which is really unique in the annals of Star Trek that there's no teaser. Was this an editorial choice, or was this at the script stage? This was a script, really, wasn't it? Because we were encouraged. I mean, because we were on CBS All Access, we didn't, even though we broke it in a very more traditional fashion of having act breaks, we didn't write it that way. Mm. It was written as a single hour to be in, in a more streaming model of, of, of television. Yeah, I think, you know, this was first first season, first year of a show and really trying to figure out what it was and how it would be presented to the world. CBS All Access was just launching and and but we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we break a show? What what, you know, CBS shows are teaser plus 5 probably on the network and um and you know, they didn't want to have act breaks in the beginning and then Maybe they did, and so it was a lot of uh, a lot of adjustments. Mm. Now, Brian had already always conceived this show is about the the first officer, the renegade first officer, not about a captain. Although the captain would be a character, was it challenging to do a Star Trek show that didn't really revolve around the captain and and rather one of his, the officers on board? The other thing that's really interesting about it, which I think was a really wonderful impulse of Brian's, was it's not only about a first officer, but when you look at really the crew of the Discovery or even, you know, the Shenzhou, it was like, it was no one who was on the main deck. It was no, it was no, all of our characters were below decks and in different places. Mm -hmm. So all the tradition of, okay, who, who's our crew? They were spread out over the whole entire ship, which made it a whole different type of storytelling. It wasn't just a a <laughs> a deck-based ship or deck-based storytelling. Right. right. Yeah, and I think when you know when Brian conceived the show, it, you know, it was it was very different. It, you know, it was much more focused on Burnham and and Burnham's journey and. And was really a Hitchcock, notorious. I think was like the way that yep. he pitched it to me, and and the way that we kind of broke stuff out. So, you know, we went through many iterations of which characters are we focusing on, and what's that going to look like, and and even before Brian left the show, we tried many different versions of it. But then after he left, and there was a regime change, we had all these assets, all these characters, all these things, and it was about, well, how do we take what we have and and put that into a format that, um, that the new regime is, is gonna want? Um, and that was, a, that was a real challenge. Were you guys up in Toronto for filming of this episode? Find him. I don't think so. No, because I know the the room was pretty, probably pretty crazy at that time. No, we uh, didn't. You know. we, I don't think. I think we left before they shot this. Is that right, Aaron? Yeah, we left like. The, <laughs> I think I think our contracts ended the day of, of of the first day of shooting. Wow, there was it was crazy because we you know we had been brought on by Brian's regime for a specific amount of time with Joe Minoski, one of the greatest of all time Star Trek writers. Masks, I think, is the greatest episode of 
of, of Star Trek that's ever been made that Joe Manoski oh, wrote. Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. That's crazy talk. I know. I'm being crazy. But Joe was, I, yeah, I'm just, I just love Joe and it was amazing. But Joe, Aaron, and myself were all, our contracts all ended at the same time, which was, I think, after a year or so. It was, a, there was only it was over a, a year. It was a really, it was yeah. a really long time. And they yeah. were just kind of like, we can't keep you anymore. I, it would have cost them a significant amount of yeah, money yeah, to of keep course. us on. And That's they were television. like, you guys are out yep. of here. Well, and you're, you're, the whole prep and, and pre-production on this and, and the development period was so long and so extended. Uh, you, you guys were on for quite a long time because, you know, before the show even started shooting, I mean, it was a clo close to a year, if not more. Um, so, okay, we don't know if the Beatles are going to be around the 23rd century, but now we have, it's canon that Wycliffe Jean will be in the 23rd century. And I know this was not in your script. That is correct. That was not, not in our script. Dave Barrett was uh, was the director who we did get to work with. We did get to work in prep on this, I, you know, and, and we did a few drafts um, before we left and then other drafts were done after we left. But we were lucky enough to collaborate with Dave, who was an incredible director and did an amazing job with this. It was a really complicated script and shoot and... Uh, uh, you know, just I went and watched the episode this morning, and it's really incredible the level of production and editing and all that mm -hmm. is wonderful. Yeah, well, I think it, Dave Barrett did a really wonderful job on this episode. It's really awesome. It's interesting because Dave Barrett, until Frakes joined uh, the the show, um, was the first director uh, on Discovery who had actually done a previous Star Trek show. Dave had done an episode of Enterprise. So uh, it was interesting because Discovery sort of shied away from people who've worked on previous iterations of Trek, uh, uh, you know, until almost like by design, almost as if there was yeah. a mandate. <laughs> almost, <laughs> you would think. And uh, and uh, now I, this, of course, you know, is a uh, a staple of Star Trek series, the time anomaly episode. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's been done very uh, successfully in the past. I think yeah. there's another example of it really working well. Um, of course, cause and effect. Uh, Brandon's episode is one of the most famous of those. Can you talk about sort of the origin? Because this episode is very atypical of the show, which was very serialized and very much focused on the the, the war with the Klingons. This was very much a throwback to sort of classic. Yeah. Star Trek standalone storytelling, where it was, you know, uh, its own story. Um, and I think that's also why it works so well. It was, you know, that was a lot of the origin of it, was Jesse and I both, <laughs> in both thinking about, like, what kind of stories like, we want to tell. We want to tell really cool science puzzles. And, and also... Even a moment of, of levity and humor, like the war was so, the war leading up to this had been so dark and serialized that we were really about pitching, hey, how can we take a break if we're going to have, you know, Rain Wilson as mud in our episode? How do we yeah. use him effectively? And, and, to, and because the original mud episodes are hilarious, they're amazing. And we wanted to t be able to take this like moment and have like a really kick ass science puzzle. It didn't start. I don't believe it started as as a time loop. I think we got mm. there. Mm. I think we wanted to do something with time, but it wasn't there yet because we, if we were going to do a trope like a time loop, because so many genre shows, sci-fi shows, have done time loop episodes. What's our spin on it going to be, and how do we merge that with mud, and then using it as oh, it's a heist, kind of opened, really opened it up for us. Of like. 
oh, I don't think anybody's used the time for a heist. And and I don't know if you guys know this about Jesse. Jesse is one of the best gamers and plays video games all the time. So it was really Jesse who brought that like that gaming experience of resetting and learning every as you go round to round into into the script. That uh, that is true. I was top fragging in Call of Duty last night. Uh, <laughs> I recommend to everyone Cold War is great. Um, but you know what's crazy is that I did went I went and looked at the script that Aaron and I wrote, and I do remember that one of the other motivations when we did this, Aaron, and I'm sure you'll remember, is Burnham at this point when we were writing the scripts was a very different character. She was still very Vulcan, mm. and there was a real desire creatively on the show to have her be more human just and so we kind of came up with the time loop concept also to help burnham evolve and and it was interesting to read the original script because i could see she starts out very vulcan and very um uh you know traditionally conservative in her approach to emotions and dealing with the other characters and that was one of the goals when we were going to have this time loop story where she was going to um, interact with uh, with uh, Ash, Tyler, and um, uh, and have to expand her emotional repertoire. Mm. Mm -hmm. it would move the character forward in the series from the place where she had started in Brian's conception of her so that she could be more uh, usable. Well, let's talk for a second about... Oh, sorry, did you want to say something, Aaron? No, no, no. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd. You both talked about how how you're big fans of uh, the Roger C. Carmel as uh, as Mudd. Obviously, the humor in episodes like Mudd's Women, especially I, Mudd, and for the deep cut, Mudd's Passion in the animated series. Um, where, where did Rain Wilson come from and the idea of bringing Harry Mudd into the show? That came from, uh, I, I want to say that Brian had met with Rain. Yeah. Uh, I think when Rain found out we were doing a show, he wanted to meet with Brian and was interested in doing something. Mm. And they talked about, you know, trying to find a way to collaborate. Right. Yeah, I think we were thinking of him as a, as a, as a series regular. I think he met for, like, either being Stamets or Saru. I think, like, like he was originally talking in that vein. Yeah. And... <laughs> and he's like, oh, I've got office money, bro. I'm not going to put on a freaking makeup all day. Like, it was. That's right. That's, it's exactly what it was. It was sorrow. And he was like, oh, you can be sorrow and you're going to be in makeup. And Raymond was like, no, I don't think I'm not going to. I don't want to sit in a makeup chair. You get Doug Jones to do that. That's that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, then, it, it would seem to me that if you really want to be on Star Trek, I mean, you know, what's the what's the trouble? <laughs> I, 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 I actually. I, I, go ahead. Go ahead I was going to say I, I actually I I like the casting of Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd a lot, um, because uh, he had the the ability to sort of uh, uh, do that switch, you know, from dangerous to uh, comedic uh, quite easily, as it turned out. I, I completely agree, and I think it's unfortunate that, other than a short trek, uh, Harry Mudd hasn't been on the show since. Right. I agree that it is a bit of a missed opportunity. And again, just looking back at some of the stuff that we wrote for him, and I think it was Joe Minoski's script introduced him to, to Discovery 
Mm-hmm. And um, we wrote him with a lot more bite and, and edge because there, mm-hmm. at, at a certain point, there was a desire to make this more R-rated, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. <laughs> that is correct. There was, there was talk of, of, this is our Game of Thrones, yes. so we yes. should be violent and, and, and have language. Yeah. And the stuff that we wrote for him was re- had a real bite to it, that, and I do miss it because he's such an incredible uh, actor. And I do think it was also, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it was when Akiva came on that we were, that he was like, what about my, like, where, where can we, can we bring some other characters back? And working with Akiva was also, it was very different than, than Brian, but Akiva's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Akiva came in with this energy of also loving track and knew every single episode and knew, knew all the mythology. And so I think it was when he came in that he was really pushing us of what can we bring in from the original series? If we're going to set in this time period, what can we do? And what about mud? And, and we we're like, yes, absolutely. You <laughs> should yeah. totally go there. It was, that was great. It was when, super exciting. That was great. When Akiva came on, because Brian had been such a Trek fan and then there was a moment where he was, where he was gone and, you know, then Akiva came in and, and it was just wonderful to have someone who was so creative working with us who loved Trek as much as we did and could really stand up for the show and to the to the network and whomever and say, hey, this is what Trek is. This is what Trek should be. And I remember they were looked at one of that first Mud script and they were they were really cruel about it. You know, the people who read it were like, this is a cartoon and what is this? Who's this Harry Mudd? And, and Akiva really stood up for it and was was such a great champion of the writers and, and, and the vision of the show. And certainly there's a lot of cooks in every show, but Akiva did an amazing, amazing job, I thought. Yeah, I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, people listening and are watching at home don't realize that particularly on a first season show, how, how aggressive, you know the studio but in this case the network is and how intrusive they can be and um you know there could be a lot of different people with lots of different perspective on what the show should be and with the franchise as big as star trek nobody wanted to quote unquote fuck it up because it's such a valuable jewel in the paramount crown or in the, at the time cbs um and so you get a lot of conflicting opinions about how a show should go a lot of, a lot of too many cooks and everybody and everybody wants the show everyone's trying to everybody wants it to be great everybody's just trying to make it great but like anything you know you need someone to lead it and to have that creative vision to move it forward and that's one thing that has made so many of the shows i've worked on special yeah i've been lucky to work with brian fuller and damon lindelof and jj abrams you know big personalities that had the strength of vision to to create something special right and the strength of will to not have it changed exactly uh, because that's another, you just got to be tough because you it be has tough. to be both you have to have the overall umbrella vision for the whole thing and be able to see when it's straying and when it's not one thing i am super proud of just to jump in is the design of the phasers they're so freaking rad! Yeah, like, I love really those phasers so much. I don't mm-hmm. give a shit, Darren, if you think they're crap. No, I like I think, them. I think they are so <laughs> badass. And, like, one of my first Star Trek toys was this little phaser, and it ha- it was like a flashlight, and you put something on top of it and shined it at the wall, and it sure. would, like, create a silhouette of yeah, a Klingon. It was and the Rem looks- Cook phaser target game. I remember it well. 
Come on. Well, look, so say we all, because I love these phasers, and I think it's another example. Because if you look, it's very much mired in the design of the original phaser, but just sort of... Well, mired it, is the know, wrong but, word. But, but I'm, okay, I'm saying it, it, it's very much, it's very redolent of the original series. And I, I think it's a great example that when you update what was there, it works very effectively Absolutely. because those phasers are gorgeous. I, I, and I would counterpoint that potentially with, you know, you guys would know this, but uh, I guess in this, the end of the second season, they redesigned the Enterprise Bridge, which I think is a less effective updating because it didn't stay as true to the classic look, the classic aesthetic. I have not seen that. I have not watched the show since uh, Aaron and I left. So the last episode <laughs> no. I saw may have been this one. This one. <laughs> Anyone... I mean, I, like, I got to tell you, I've never heard of anyone. I, I, I wonder who that person is who, once they leave a show, actually continues to watch it. I mean, I certainly have never watched a show. That, I mean, I can't think of anybody who would ever walk, continue to watch a show they've left. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> Dude, I go through periods of time of, of feeling like I can't watch the network that, of a show that I've left. So... <laughs> A great, uh, a great friend, Javier Grigio Markswatch, compared to, after you leave a show, having a weekly dinner date with your ex-girlfriend, right. like, that you broke up, like, why would you do that? Like, it's just not something that would you would do. Right. Now, look, the, 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 time, tra the time element here is very meticulous. I, was this particularly complicated to break? I mean, you talked about, obviously, being a huge fan of video games, that it helped you navigate this, but... Uh, um, how difficult was it to sort of break this in the room in terms of, you know, the repeating stories and also keep it fresh? Well, we didn't break it in the room. Aaron and I broke it in, in my room, which was amazing, so that we could just focus on putting it up on the board and, and having the time to just lay out each detail and, and see how they connected with each other. Yeah, because it's a, of, a, of a standalone nature, we can kind of we could we were able to peel off a little bit, and <laughs> the way our offices were, it was also like my office and and Joe Manowski's office and Jesse's office were all connected, so it was kind of like we could have a little like side room over there. It was a, it was just a it was it was a lot of fun, but also what's really difficult about this time loop episode is we're doing it from Burnham's perspective, but Stamets is the one who's out of the loop, which is which is very difficult. <laughs> when you th when you think about it, when we're trying to break it, it's like, oh, when you're traditionally doing these stories, you are doing it from Stamets' POV. You're doing it from Groundhog's Day. You're doing it from Bill Murray's POV. Right. And mm -hmm. when you break that POV and you have to reset it, like we're like, oh, crap. <laughs> how, do, how do we make sure that we can execute this and still have it be from Burnham's POV and have her be the one who's growing, even though she's the one who's resetting. Uh, yeah, Aaron. I don't know if you've looked at the script lately, but what's freaking genius about it is that not only do we have it from Burnham's perspective, but then it does go to Stamets' perspective. And you get mm -hmm. to see the loop from Stamets' perspective, and then you get to see the loop from Mud's perspective. And like we showed everybody's perspective of the loop in a way that was so cool so and it becomes I, rashomon yes absolutely absolutely um but it was look rashomon's bored the crap out of me so <laughs> what we did that i thought was great and I was, again reading it is those 
those sections are just the tight, memorable moments that we repeated of other people's POV. So it did remind me that Aaron and I really figured it out, like what everybody was doing and what each moment was and where they were and what the geography of it was. And, and then we sliced it up. Yeah, that's I, I, I can't imagine it, 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 it's particularly challenging to break an episode like this. And then also, I guess, to sustain the, um, uh, you know, the through line, because, of course, every time, you know, how many times is too many to have them come back? When do you start to lose the audience? You know, it's 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 it's, uh, you know, how many times can you repeat it before it becomes kind of redundant? And that's why you just got to keep drilling down and just making sure that whatever is on screen is amazing and compelling. And and even in the script, we we I just was reading, we wrote in the description, you know, do not repeat this. Like, you know, make sure mm -hmm. that, you know, each thing has new angles and new energy to it so that it doesn't drag on and, and get boring like Rashomon. <laughs> oh my one god, the, you really want to go on the record and saying that? I guess you do. I'm happy to. <laughs> so one, uh -huh. one of the main things that are different about this released episode uh, than your original script? Uh, the structure is the same. A lot of the big scenes are the same. Um, All the core concepts and the emotion is the same. Mm -hmm. Um you know, especially and and leaning towards the ending and and using this as this vehicle to get Burnham and Ash together. Yep. I think that you know, oh, some of the differences are you know some dialogue differences, um, and then they probably because of time they had to do some cuts, so some of our stuff was trimmed out as well. Yeah, but this stuff was all all these montages. This was all in there. Yeah, uh, and. You know, we did go deeper in the Burnham um, stuff with Tyler. Mm -hmm. In in her time loops when she's connecting with Tyler, I thought we did that so beautifully in the script that really had her trying on different versions of herself with Tyler to connect with him. And we made Stamets a part of that. And it was a little Cyrano rom-com-y in, mm. in a way that I, I just was so charmed by when I was looking at it again this morning. Um, and you know, another thing too that we did in the writing of it is there's a, a tendency, I think, in some of the best sci-fi to just assume that the audience has seen a sci-fi show before. They know what a lot of the concepts are. I think there's a little bit more exposition and on, and, and on the nose dialogue in this than was in the script that Aaron and I wrote. Because mm -hmm. we really thought, you know what, we're writing this for Star Trek fans. They're paying money to watch a Star Trek show. They've seen Star Trek before. So we can probably shorthand some of this stuff. And there was a lot more name checking and referencing um, Star Trek lore and, and places that they'd been. So it was very, it, it was a little different in that approach. We, we, you know, one person we haven't talked about yet. And I, I think that, you know, given how much people have fallen in love, understandably with Anson Mount as Captain Pike, uh, that people don't talk as much about J Jason Isaacs as Lorca. And I think Jason Isaacs was quite good uh, in the in the show for a season. Um, he's a terrific actor. He's been great in many things. What, what was your approach to Lorca, especially because you always knew you were hiding the ball that he was from the Mirror Universe, and how much did you have to walk that tightrope? Or did you not? Because, I mean, it was in that 
uh, original conception. I mean, I guess in in Brian's version, she goes to the mirror universe. But um, yep. what? Uh, how much of the Lorca thing was you know sort of uh, treading water, or just what was your approach to that character in general? Go, Aaron. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure where to begin. It, it iterates, you know, so much of it is iterative of, you know, <laughs> where you start and where you end up. And he, I, I don't think originally he was from the Mirror Universe. I think that was something that we came up with, you know, as we were kind of going along, partially because... <laughs> I don't know if we ever filmed this. Jesse wrote this amazing scene. Uh, and I can't remember what episode it was for. Of It was like the origin of Lorca. Of like when Lorca was on his original ship, which was the Baran. Was, yep. Is that correct? Yeah. And it was being boarded by Klingons. And it's ju it just portrayed him as this ridiculously cool warrior captain that we hadn't seen before. Right. And he was willing to sacrifice his ship for the for the war effort, and we came at it as really like this general type, and the, and that was what started really defining Lorca for us. And I mean, I remember just hearing these great stories that Jesse would tell me. Jesse was on set for episode for our episode four, right? Mm -hmm. And he just told these great stories about interacting with Jason and. And how they got along because it was really about connecting. Jesse is wonderful at connecting with actors because he doesn't take like he's so good at it because he really engages them and 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 pushes them to give really cool performances because he engages them on such a a, a deep level of what is this character about? What are they doing? How do you make it cooler? And I loved hearing stories about Jason and Jesse, which he might uh, have be able to share with us now. Any of that. I don't remember any of those <laughs> stories. I love that you just said all that stuff. But for me, I'm like, I did love working with Jason. He was amazing. And, it, you know, I do think that, that for me, I actually have a hard time working with actors because I'm such a nerd and I get so excited and I can't even believe I'm like, my God, I'm talking to Sonequa Martin-Green. Like, she's so beautiful and amazing. And like, how do I talk to her like a human? Does she know I'm a freak? You and use that voice. That's what yes. you do. Yeah, he uses that voice often. I use that voice and then they call security. Right. Uh, you know what? I just was going to, like, again, these shows, I hate this about, and it's, it's something that I've felt I've seen happen in my career because I started on Alias and then Lost, and then Heroes, these shows that were serialized, and they present these serialized stories to the audience, and the audience is always like, they had this amazing plan, and they've been telling this amazing story from the very beginning, and they knew the ending, and so all the, it's like, what the hell? Like, the fun thing is like, we're just creative people making stuff up as we went along, and going along, going with the flow, and making the creative discoveries of like, oh, you know what, this actor's popping. This. Like the way that you wrote this other character's popping. Like, hey, remember that scene that we wanted to film that was crucial that we never filmed? So the fact that we didn't film that is a disaster because then who the hell is this character and why would they ever be a Starfleet captain? Well, maybe the only reason would be if they came from the Mirror Universe would be the reason that they were so, so <laughs> a dick. Um, and then it ends up seem, seeming kind of genius and ends up kind of working. 
you know, we had a lot of other plans. We had an ama amazing plan with Takovma, who had been the Klingon guy, and that guy was going to exist in the mirror universe. And you just, you know, that's how you make God laugh, is you make plans. And then you yeah, got to go with the flow. Because I can't remember if it was... I, I can't remember who came up with that. I kind of feel like it was either Joe Minoski or Kemp Powers, who was a staff writer on the show. And Kemp is amazing. Yeah. And if you haven't seen soul or one night in miami i highly recommend these 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 two great movies this year and i think kemp came in he was like you know Lorca acts like like he's from the mirror universe like he doesn't act like a starfleet captain he's brash and he's and he says whatever whatever he wants and he's and he's violent maybe he's from the mirror universe we're like oh let's chase that Let's yeah. keep that going. I love and that. I, I think that was it, that was so great. And for me, it 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 just made it. I was going to say it saved the show, but the, that's too extreme. But you know, I had visions of what Starfleet was like and what Starfleet captains would behave like and how people would treat each other. And it felt like that adjustment to Lorca for me made a made a big difference. I. Uh, I got to ask you because, of course, uh, there was someone else in the room. You you, you talked about uh, some of the other people that were on staff uh, when you guys were there. And I think one of the things that surprised people a lot was the announcement of Nick Meyer being uh, added to the staff. This was one of those Brian things that was sort of like amazing. It's like, oh, I'm going to hire a guy who's never really worked in a room, who's never worked and played well with others, <laughs> but who, uh, you know, did the brilliant Star Trek in the past. And I'm going to bring him in. And, and, and what was that like having Nick uh, Nick Meyer as part of the, the, the team, so to speak? It was incredible. I loved it, and I loved Nick. And obviously, time after time is you know an amazing movie, and was a really significant movie for me. And and then obviously, uh, Star Trek two, and um, and then four, and so to be able to work after, I mean, come on, it was Nick Meyer. Like it was, it was completely ridiculous that we got to have be in a room with that guy, and he had this amazing giant dog that he brought to work with him every day. Do you remember that? It was like literally the biggest freaking dog, and they would just walk in. And the dog wasn't on a leash, and this huge dog. And I just remember that. And then every day Nick would take his nap after lunch. He would like have a, a nap for like half an hour after lunch. Um, it sounds it, it like was, you're talking about Han Solo. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Is Nick Meyer Han Solo? You may be. It's possible. Yes, Captain Mud. It was wonderful. Captain working Mudd. with Nick. Captain Leo Walsh. This is very much. It was so great. You know who else was great on that show? And it always makes me laugh when I think about it. Was Kirsten? Mm -hmm. Right? Was it Kirsten? She was Byer? a novelist. She wrote Voyager novels, and 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 like you know, fan, well, I guess for the novels, and then she's gone on and and she survived. She's been there to this day, and I guess she was involved in the creation of Picard, and uh, yeah. she's had a lot of success there. She's crushing it. She was amazing, and she was really brought in to protect Star Trek lore and Star Trek canon. So when we would be talking in the room about stuff like, oh, maybe there's like a Gorn skeleton there. And just the look and, you know, you know like apoplectic, like is the, the Gorn, they, they can be a Gorn. They hadn't found the Gorn yet. And then, like, that was my know. reaction too. 
And then later we would be like, well, you know, because Lorca's from the mirror universe, he has different, uh, he knows different things. And since it's in Lorca's weapons room, maybe that's where he got it. Um, oh, she would used to get so frustrated. It's yeah, such an impossible. What's that? I was just saying, who's to say they knew it was a Gorn? It could just be a skeleton, Darren. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Sure, it could. <laughs> and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. <laughs> Kirsten was put in a very impossible situation of having to balance like what's new and what's what is lore, sure. and how do you t- how do you balance these things? And it squarely fell on her shoulders. What is lore and what is Lorca? It was amazing. She was incredible and had such a great energy and spirit about it. And she, ha- you know, had to work with Brian, whose unfettered creativity, you know, would just drive her bananas. And then you had Akiva, who had, you know, wild ideas about stuff he wanted to see. And she always found a great collaborative way to, you know, redirect and and, and make it all work-ish. This is always the challenge in these time episodes, isn't it? How who, the one person who's outside the timeline who has the secrets, you know, it's kind of like Whoopi and yesterday's Enterprise, you know, or in in, in uh, uh, cause and effect. There always has to be that person that is aware of what's going on. And I imagine that may be one of the biggest challenges of writing an episode like this is what's their way into breaking out of out of the timeline and being cognizant of what's actually happening to them. The thing we did with Stamets in the script that was really rad was it took a toll on him. He was really effed up by being in the time loop. It was ripping him apart emotionally and physically. And that was another great constant. So for me, when I watch it, it's a little disorienting that he's so clean in all this because he was. it was almost like he was kind of a not a drug addict but he was really strung out in our script because it had such an emotional cost on him the other thing in the original this is a cool scene i love the gormagander i <laughs> it's funny because you know so much of this episode was just an exercise in creativity of how can we push ourselves to be as creative as possible and the fact that we're like, well, how is, how's he going to get on the ship? How, how are they even going to let mud on the ship? Right. Make any sense? And kind of coming in the belly of a whale was like, how, how can we do a space whale? How, how can we possibly do this? And we run in the script and then they do it. And it, we create a gormagander is just like, I feel like that's part of the genius and the fun of working in television is you just come up with these crazy things and then it's there. Right. And yeah. then they do it. And that um, everybody knows there are no whales in the 23rd century. Oh, wait. Uh, uh, <laughs> the yeah, is really cool. And I, I, the, the, the visual effects are, it's a, it's a great creature. And it's, you're yeah, right. It's such an audacious choice to have, uh, you know, him emerge with a phaser from the mouth of this giant beast. It's, it's a really fun way to open the open the episode so this episode was actually nominated for a hugo award and and much like uh, uh um i believe um uh harlan ellison's city under forever was nominated for his script uh i think it was your actual script that was nominated not the episode is that correct are you done i don't know almost i don't know that 
But I think I, it's the I, episode what, that gets nominated. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I will say, Aaron, what you're, I, you know, this really was a moment in time of unfettered creativity because of the regime change and the schedule. There was just sort of a moment where, like, hey, we need something, and you know. Aaron and I, and with Akiva's amazing support, were able to just kind of do this thing. And because I remember the Space Whale, you know, certainly something we joked about, but there had been some downtime in the earlier, you know, seasons of it. And I just for practice, I would write random Star Trek scenes, like bridge scenes, just to get myself tuned up on how you would write Trek. And I think I wrote one that had a Space Whale in it that, uh, that I remember. I don't know if that was the origin, but. You know, it's uh, it's really kind of ridiculous and incredible that that's in in here. It's super ridiculous. I think that I can't. I I stopped going through the script um, <laughs> because it was bringing. I was like, oh, this script is amazing. I'm so in love with it. I think that there was like a cock. We had we built a cockpit inside the whale yes. that she goes into. Yes. To be able to defuse the time loop. And again, it was going back to like, oh, how are we going to do our version of a science puzzle right. and and not talk down to the audience, but really incorporate the audience in so that we can get to, <laughs> so that Burnham can use her Vulcan logic and and solve the puzzle and come through this. Yeah. And they, and they actually they're at when we wrote this, there had been an article that I'd read online about a new form of matter that had been discovered, which was like a crystallized version of time. So mm -hmm. in the in our script, we actually name checked some of the legit science that this concept was built on, which I think the best Trek do, did mm -hmm. or does, where it references some real theories and ideas and, and spins them in, in creative ways. How much did you work with the science advisor? Was it much? I mean, I know you do a ton of research for your episodes. Did you lean on the science advisor at all? Was it really not necessary when you're dealing with uh, something as fanciful as this? We did not deal with the science advisor, Mark. Okay, thank you, Jesse. <laughs> Coach and answer. <laughs> it's like, it wasn't really, it's like, what the hell are they going to do? Like, right, you know, there's it's nonsense. It's all it's nonsense. Worth, it's worth noting, it, 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 I think what could get easily lost because, you know, the pace of this is, is, is so quick and there's so much going on, but this is a bottle show. You guys have written a, a bottle show. You never, you never leave the ship. Uh, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's a cost saving. Uh, this is, you know, the whole ramp up uh, was extremely expensive. Uh, I think the sets, you know, in Toronto were uh, uh, huge, huge costs. And and then there was also, uh, you, you know, it did start production when they had hoped. So the clock, the cashier was ticking. And as, as high a budget as the show has, every show still has to be a, a cognizant of their budget and it, it clearly this this was a, a way of paying the piper i would think and then you i throw think it, it out probably helped out <laughs> and look we're, we have to spend some money <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i do think you know i i actually think you know I, maybe this ending works better than what was in our script and i can't remember if we collaborated on coming up with this but our, I, having read our version this morning, you know, we definitely were still feeling our way about how are they going to get out of this one? Um, 
you know, we still had the same resolution with uh, um, uh, them tricking Mud and um, Stella and Baron Grimes showing up at the end. But uh, I think we we did it in a slightly different way. Look at this, five, four. Yeah. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, Stella in your version of this episode is not nearly as shrewish as his idea uh, of Stella in I Mud, you know, where she is just awful, you know. I think it's, it's, Aaron, and, Aaron and I think about women differently than that generation, perhaps. So we might have had a different, we might have had a different approach to how we were going to do that. Um, but... I also think it sort of set, looking again at our script, it kind of set up an arc that he, his, some, there's some interaction with Stella in our script that suggests that the relationship is going to go south and maybe started in a good place, but then was going to end poorly. Um, uh, well, it was 10 years later that we saw the shrewish version of Stella. And yeah, the, it was his own perception. It was from his own perception. So, I think Absolutely. that's a fair thing. Plus, you know, he'd really gone to seed by then. You think? <laughs> but Roger's... <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, the cast of this show is incredible. It's really amazing to me. Sonique was such a, such a rock star. And uh, everybody did such an amazing job with, what again, what is nonsense? The stuff that you're giving these people to do. <laughs> is ridiculous but look at the way that they're doing it with so much conviction and and real emotion and you know i guess that's why they they are called actors and yeah. <laughs> acting and how much did shazi uh latif's role evolve you know obviously he's no longer on the show but had you anticipated him being a big part of the show the whole idea of the undercover klingon yeah, that that was that that was one of Brian's initial initial ideas, and especially, but you know, we because it's Brian, he he got so into the transformational aspect of of giving up what it means to be Klingon in order to become human, and we talked a ton about that transformation, how it would strip him away. Uh, but that was always that had always been there. Um, what was the movie he made us watch, Jesse? Uh, the one with uh, the girl who drags him into the van, the Black Widow girl, Scarlett Johansson, that one? Oh, you talking about Scar you talking oh, about you Under the Skin? You talking about Under the Skin? No, it was an older movie about that guy who uh, gives up his life and changes his face. And it's not... Seconds? Seconds. It was amazing. Frankenheimer's amazing. Seconds was great. But again, the focus of Brian's show was going to be different. We were going to spend more time with the characters individually. Mm. And, um, you know, it, for good or ill, it was going to be a little different in terms of Trek. And you were really going to go deep and see how they felt about things and spend a little bit of time with stuff. So there was room to tell a really transformational dark arc with uh, someone like... Uh, with. Uh, um, his character, um, and that kind of went away. I don't even know how it resolved, bro. I, I didn't see that. I don't see that. What happens? What happens? Do they figure it out? And let's never forget. I don't know. I'm sure it's on Wikipedia. Let's not forget uh. that, that Arne Darwin in Trouble with Tribbles was a Klingon masquerading as a human as well. 
So there is yes, presence. Let's not forget that. There is presence. <laughs> and I, we, dude, we talked about that. And, you know, we were, we certainly did, did talk about that. But there was very different ideas about what the Klingons would look like yeah. and what they would do. And, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of really artistic and odd versions of, of, of what that could have been. Um, maybe we're better that we didn't see some of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, and that brings us to, into the, uh, as we resolve um, this episode. Um, and, you know, what when you sum up your Star Trek experience and look back at your, uh, um, you know, ha having worked in this universe, you know, what's your kind of takeaway from it all? I'm proud of it. I, you know, I, I'm, I, I, Star Trek was such a significant part of my youth and, and shaping me as a person and, and giving me a sense of what was possible. And, and, and then it, it inspired me to learn about how the show was made creatively. And the fact that I got to participate in it at any level is just beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel really lucky. It's like, there's so many writers <laughs> that I admire that I've, that I've studied, you know, that, that came from track, whether it's TOS or, or next generation or, or, you know, or, or deep space night, like people I love and that I get to be a part of history. It feels like you're a part of history. It feels like you're a part of something important and that you get to touch it even for a brief period of time or write an episode or two. It feels like, that's significant. I love that that is a part of my resume and a part of my career. Yeah. It's really amazing. And it's so great that that history is chronicled in, in books like The 50-Year Mission. Oh, And I recommend anyone who has not looked at those books to look at them. And, uh, and I'm optimistic that in 10 years' time after the NDAs and statute of limitations have you know, gone away that we'll be able to participate in Mark's book about that will discovery. never happen. I've, I've made it very clear that I am done writing about Star Trek. <laughs> that is a book for someone else to tell. There are a lot of people who are covering contemporary Star Trek who are doing a very good job. People like Ryan Britt, and I'll leave it to them for posterity uh, to, to continue the saga. But I, I, I my, my journey ends here. I'm, 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 I'm done writing about Star Trek. Um, so you're saying the line must be drawn here and no further. And no further. Yes, that's right. Well, guys, this was great having you uh, at the briefing room to talk uh, about your tenure in the Star Trek universe on Discovery and uh, magic to make the sanest man go mad. And fortunately, none of us went mad doing this today. Uh, we, we, <laughs> it was quite enjoyable and, and, and quite informative. An honor to participate. Thank you guys. For, Thank you uh, both. Having yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, no, look, thank you for uh, joining us uh, in the briefing room. And, uh, you know, um, I, I just, uh, I, will, I will leave you with this thought. Um, where, where can Star Trek go from here? Like for it to continue to live long and prosper, where, where do you think Star Trek needs to go in the future to continue to be a, a viable and, and, and a part of popular culture and to, to ensure its, its continued survival? Uh, I, you know, I think that's such a, that's such a great question. And I think until it, you know, I, I think someone has to really forge a new path with it. 
that it's got to break away from some of the some of the legacy systems. And uh, we're all grognards that have a very specific memory of what Trek was, and so much of it is nostalgia, and the way that we look at it and judge it, and even craft some of these episodes. So I- I'm optimistic that you know there's young creators out there who could be brought in and take that take that IP and rebuild it into something uh, something that feels really fresh and and relevant. Aaron, any thoughts? <laughs> How can I stop that? <laughs> well, guys, uh, this has been great. And I want to thank you uh, out there in uh, podcast land for listening to another episode of the Inglorious Trexperts Briefing Room, where we bring you curated audio commentaries of uh, classic and, and important Star Trek episodes. Um, we'll be back with more episodes and more special guests in the weeks to come. But as always, you can listen to Inglorious Trexperts wherever you listen to podcasts every Friday. And you can watch our regular podcast, Inglorious Trexperts, on Electric Now. So download the Electric Now app where you can actually watch video podcasts of our regular podcast. The audio commentaries are only available uh, on audio, however. So um, uh, you should check that out. And also along with our sister shows, The 430 Movie, Best Movies Never Made, The Rebel and the Rogue, and many other shows. And... Uh, uh, we hope you will join us. And if you like this, please write, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at Twitter on Inglorious Trek and on Instagram and Facebook at Inglorious Trexperts. So until next time, on behalf of Aaron, Jesse, Darren, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, Ingloriously, of course. And the briefing room is now closed. Scott, would you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.